Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. As you make your way back to your seat, go ahead. Uh, let's turn to Micah. Uh, we're going to be in Micah chapter 4, um, verses 1. And so let's, let, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for um, this incredible mercy and grace that you have lavished with us. Thank you that we get to experience peace with you, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what your Son has accomplished for us on the cross. And that we can access, we have access to you. We can enter into your presence with boldness and confidence. We can lay our petitions and our burdens uh, before you, knowing that you hear us and that you care for us and that you answer us. And Lord, as we come to you with our burdens now, Lord, with helping us to understand this text, help us to be encouraged by this text, help us to be convicted of our sins by this text, and help us to reorient our hearts and our minds as we look to you as the ruling king in this text. Lord, please stir us, please convict us, and reveal truth to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in week two of celebrating Advent, and so if you're new to church or new to this whole idea of Advent, real quick, um, Advent is the celebration of the first coming of Jesus in humility, but it's also the anxious waiting of Jesus to return in glory. And so the season of Advent is marked by a time of watching and waiting, remembering and rejoicing. And so some of the things you might be wondering is like, okay, we're in Micah here, shouldn't we be like in the beginning of Matthew or Luke and kind of look at the, 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 the Advent narrative. And so what does Micah have to do with Advent? And, and I think it has quite a lot because if you think about it, the, the message of, of Micah really reminds us that when we look around our world, we're reminded that our world is broken. Our world is filled with cruelty, violence, corruption, oppression, and injustice. That sin has infiltrated every segment of society. We find ourselves living in complete darkness, and yet amidst all this darkness, there is hope. And in through the prophet of Micah, God promises that amidst the darkness, amidst the chaos, a king is coming. A kingdom is going to appear, and it's going to appear in the unlikeliest place, in the the unlikeliest of way, and that is where righteousness and justice and peace will prevail. Now, last week, really discouraging, we looked at the first three three chapters of Micah, and it was just judgment, and all we saw was just the rebellion of God's people, and so Micah told the people that God is going to leave his throne, he's going to leave heaven, and he's going to come down to earth, and he's going to bring judgment. Why? Because the people have rebelled against God's covenant. The people have rebelled against God's commandments. They've rejected God's word. And as a result of their rebellion and their rejection, it's only disaster that is waiting for them. And yet, in the midst of all of this, the people were convinced nothing bad is going to happen because we are God's people. We are Abraham's seed. Clearly, God is just going to forgive us. God is going to bless us because that's what he does. And they continued in their rebellion. And yet what we're going to see in chapter 4 is the Lord is patient. The Lord is faithful. Like technically, the Lord had every right to abandon them. 
Because again, what's a covenant? God entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel, the Mosaic covenant. And the condition of that covenant was obeying the Ten Commandments, obeying God's law. God said in that covenant, I will be your God. You will be my people. I'll provide you land. I will bless you. I will keep you if you obey my commandments. And what did the people agree to do? You'll be our God. We'll obey your commandments. And what's the very first command? You will have no other God before you. And yet, what did the people do? They had other gods before them. They bowed down to every single idol. And so technically, the Lord could have forsaken them and said, you know what? I'm done with you. You've broken the condition. I'm going to form a new people from Abraham's seed. And yet he does not do it because as we get to chapter 4, we see how the Lord through the prophet Micah gave these people just an amazing word of hope. He gives them four promises designed to give them hope as they find themselves living in utter darkness and full of chaos. So let's look at the four promises that the Lord gives them. So if you're taking notes, before you look at the text, here's the very first promise. So what we're going to do is kind of like uh, this morning, we're going to look at a promise, read the text, apply that promise to our lives, and then look at the next promise. So here's the very first promise that the Lord gives his people through the prophet Micah. If you're taking notes, is this. The Lord will govern his people by his law. That's the very first promise. The Lord will govern his people by his law. So let's look at our text in verses 1 to verse 3. It says this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Peoples will stream to it and many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his way so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. So let's unpack this a little bit. So Micah promised the people of God who were hopeless that a day was coming that the Lord will govern his people by his law. Now you're like, that's not really a promise. Like, what's the big deal about the promise? It seems like a strange promise of hope because did, the peop- did God not already give his people the law? Did they not already receive the law? Were they not supposed to be governed by God's law? And yet, what did the people do with God's law? They chose to, to, to break it and rebel against it and ignore it. So how is this a promise of hope that the Lord will govern his people by his law? I think there are two aspects to the promise. The very first aspect to this promise is that God's law will cover the earth. No longer will God's law just cover the nation of Israel, but God's law will cover the whole earth. And so let me explain to you this a little bit. If you think about it, When God entered into a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, he gave them the law. And what was their main mission with receiving the law other than obeying it? They were supposed to be what kind of nation? A 
holy nation, a distinct nation. So in other words, their mission and the whole purpose of them receiving the law was for them to remain distinct, for them to remain holy. And their distinction was not based on a superior ethnicity or superior nationality, but rather they were supposed to show the nations what it looks like to live under the law of God, in the land of God, and enjoying the blessings of God. In other words, the world looks at God's law and they see God's law as bad and oppressive. Like, like almost every atheist's attack with the Old Testament is, has to do with God's law. And they say God's law is ridiculous. God's law is oppressive. God's law is unrealistic. How is this good for the people? And yet the nations had a similar posture towards the Lord. And the nation of Israel, when they received the law, was supposed to teach the nation, was supposed to teach their children the goodness of God's law. That when we live in the land of God and under the law of God, we're enjoying the blessings of God so the nations could see that God's law was not oppressive, but God's law is good. So as they were supposed to teach their children God's law, they were supposed to teach the nations God's law by remaining a distinct nation. But instead of teaching their children, instead of teaching the nation God's law and showing them how good God's law is, that it's not oppressive, how they enjoyed the blessings in God's land by obeying the law, instead, what did they do? They abandoned God's law. They followed the law of the other nations. And as a result, the people did not, the the nations did not know God's law. And instead of enjoying God's blessings by obeying God's law, they experienced God's curses by as they rebelled against God's law. And yet, God's law will cover the earth. And God will govern His people by His law. And what Micah is saying is similar to that of, of Jeremiah, where God's law will cover the earth. Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 33 to 34. You can just write down the reference, and then maybe after church you can look up the verse. But let me read it to you. And maybe this will kind of give us a little bit more insight of what it means uh, for God's law to cover the earth and this promise of how God will govern his people by his law. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 to 34. It says this, Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching, a.k.a. my law, within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. So in other words, what both Jeremiah, what both Micah are implying of God governing his people by his law. From this passage, we see the purpose of the law. What is the main purpose of the law? To reveal the holy nature and holy character of God. You want to know what God is like? Look at his law. And this is why through the prophet Jeremiah, God is declaring that no longer will people say, teach them how to know God, but rather they will know God through which means the law that will be written in their hearts. God's law will cover the entire earth, which means all the nations will know who God is, will know his holy character. 
And they will obey God and God will govern them by his law and they will experience the blessings of living under God's law. The second aspect of this promise, not only will God's law cover the earth, but the second one is this, that the Messiah will reign supreme and teach us God's law. Look at Micah chapter 4 verse 2. It says this, And many nations will come and say, Come! Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And look at the second verse. And he will do what? He will teach us about his way so that we can do what? So that we may walk in his path. This is very similar to Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 4. Just write down the reference. Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 4. He says, this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I've put my spirit on him. And he will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. And he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. The coasts and islands will wait for his instruction. In other words, what, what, what Isaiah is saying, what Micah is implying is this Messiah servant, this king is going to reign. But he's not going to reign like all the other kings. How do other kings reign? They reign by running campaigns, by shouting louder than everybody, they, they, by oppressing and conquering other nations. But this king is not going to reign that way. He doesn't have to shout. He doesn't have to run a campaign. He doesn't have to conquer other nations. But what is he going to do? He's going to diligently teach. And as he's teaching, he will bring justice. And even in his teaching, he's not going to grow weak or discouraged, but he will patiently teach, and the nations will wait for his instructions. They will stop, and they will obey. And as a result of the Lord governing his people by his law, Look at verse 3. Look at the result here. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up sword against nation and they will never again train for war. So what is the result of God governing his people by his law when he governs the nation by his law where the the, the law are written in people's hearts and enjoying God's blessing, living in God's land and God governing them? Peace. No more need for war. No more need for weapons. There will be peace. The Lord promises his people that he is going to come and rule them and rule by his law. So let, let, let's apply this. Like, like, how does that give us hope? Like, how does, this, how does this promise of God governing us by his law give us hope? I think two groups. The first one is those who know God's law. But let's just be honest. We know God's law, but we struggle to keep God's law. And at times we find it difficult to keep God's law. How does this promise of God governing us by his law give us hope? There's going to be a time where the very presence of sin will be vanquished. And when we look at the law, we will see the beauty of the law. 
We will be almost like King David that he kind of got a glimpse where he says, late at night, I meditate upon your law. Your law is like honey around my lips. In other words, he's thinking about God's law and he says, man, that law is good. Anybody else experienced that recently? Anybody long to experience that? Yeah, and this is how it gives us hope that there's going to be a time where there'll be no more presence of sin. There'll be no temptation to rebel against God. We'll see the law for what it is as it reveals the nature and the character of God and we'll meditate upon it and we will follow and we'll be able to obey it fully and we'll be able to say God's law is good and under God's law is many blessings. Because the law comes from God, it'll be impossible for us to sin. This is how this promise gives us hope. For right now, what do we do under God's law? We continue to endure, to persevere. We, we force our sinful nature to say, no, God's law is not oppressive. God's law is good because it reveals the nature and character of God. It reveals to me my sinfulness and my need for a savior. Thus, I'm going to keep it because God has given his law for my good to build me up and not break me down. And yes, it might be hard to obey, but I can trust. That what God has given me is for my good. And then the other part, how this promise of God governing his people by his law, how it gives us hope. Another way is this. We see the world looking at God's law and they say God's law is ridiculous. God's law is oppressive. And so what do they do? They make their own laws. And what's the result of following their own laws? Corruption, violence, oppression, injustice. We see the wicked getting away with everything and the poor and the outcast not getting anything. We live in a culture that law supports you as much as you can afford it. It plays in your favor if you have deep pockets, but if you have no money, guess what? The law is not very friendly to you and that's the result of man-made laws. And there's going to come a time where all the injustice and all the oppressors and all the violent, I don't care how deep their pockets are or how deep their corruption is, they will stand before the king and he will govern them by his law, which means they will face judgment for everything they have done. And now there will be a time of righteousness, peace, and justice. What an amazing day it will be when God, the law of God triumphs on the earth and true justice prevails. Let's look at the, the second promise. If you're taking notes, verse 4. Not only will the, law, uh, will the Lord govern his people um, by the law, but the second one is this. The Lord will govern his people as their king. The Lord will govern his people as their king. Let's look at verse 4. But each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of armies has spoken. Though all the peoples each walk in the name of their gods, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And on that day, this is the Lord's declaration. I will assemble the lame and the gathered, the scattered. Those I've injured, I will make the lame into a remnant. Those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. 
You see, Micah is looking around at the nation of Israel. He's looking around at the world and he sees countless people who are chasing after false gods. We already saw in chapter 3, verse 3, the result of them bowing down to all these false idols is disastrous. And Micah says, there's going to be a time when the Messiah comes and he's going to reign and his people are going to walk in the name of the Lord forever and ever. Never again will God's people worship false gods. And so who are these people that will worship the Lord forever and ever? Look at verse 6 here. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration. I will assemble the lame, gather the scattered, those I have injured. I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Like, like what the Lord is doing, he's taking all the outcasts, he's taking all the weak, and what is he doing? He's gathering to himself to make them his people, and he will reign over them, and the reason they'll be strong is not because they were strong, but the reason why they'll be strong is because their king is strong, and he will reign over them, and look at what this reign will look like. Him reigning over them, the king, the Messiah reigning over God's people. First of all, we look at verse 4. There will be security. It says, but each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten them. So in other words, like in, in Micah's day and even maybe a little bit in our day, property was just taken away for no reason. And Micah is saying, you'll be secure. You'll be safe. You will not be frightened. You don't have to watch out. Now for us, maybe property is not taken away for for no reason, but certainly some property is stolen. And that's why we have security alarm systems and all kinds of stuff. But when King Jesus reigns, guess what? It will not be needed. We will live securely. In this reign, there will be a regathering. We already talked about it. The Lord is gathering the scattered. Those who have injured by his grace and he mercies. He gathers them. He strengthens them. Like, like think about this. What incredible grace that the Lord gathers those he have injured and those he's scattered. What do we do with things we, we throw away? They're, they're gone. And the Lord injures people. Because he disciplines people and he scatters them for what purpose? So that they can be weak, so that they they can be lame, and so that they can realize we're fragile humans. And by his mercy and by his grace, he gathers them from all the nations. And he turns them into a strong nation because he is a king that is very strong. And he rules. And the second, the third one, he reigns. Not only does he bring security, he regathers. But look at this in verses 5. And verses 7, it says, We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In verse 7, it says, Then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. How long is the Lord going to reign? Forever. Now, now think about that, just that phrase in the grand scheme of things. We know from history that nations come, nations go. Rulers and kings come and go. Which ruler and which kingdom has endured forever? None of them. None of them even made a promise that we would rule forever. And yet the Lord says, and he makes this claim, that my Messiah 
I will rule and reign over you forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen says the same thing. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The Lord will govern us, his people, as his king. So how does that give us hope? Let's just be honest. We live in a time of uncertainty and and volatility. Um, This week I had this thought as the year is wrapping up. I'm like, oh man, 2023 is almost over. I'm so glad this year is almost over. But then the other thought popped in my mind. Oh no, 2024 is coming. Anybody looking forward to 2024? No. Can I say election year? (laughs) Volatility, uncertainty continues. This is the days we live in. And here's the reality of it. At any given moment right now, Our way of living, what we know to be life right here in the 21st century in Southern Maryland can be taken away like that. Whether it is from another influential, powerful nation that rises up and decides to conquer us, or whether it's from eternal controls, government that embraces other ideals and that oppresses us. There is nothing guaranteed right now on this earth. And we will continue to live in uncertainty and volatility. So how do we have hope? How does this promise of the Lord reigning over us as king give us hope? Because the uncertainty and the volatility is only temporary. Our king is coming. And when he comes, he's going to rule and he's going to reign and he's going to gather us. And he's going to turn us into a strong nation because he is king, not because we're strong. And there will be justice. There will be peace. There will be security forever and and ever. So embrace this volatility, uncertainty, It is only temporary. Our hope is not in November 2024. Our hope is in the king that is coming. The third promise is this. The Lord will govern his people by, if you're taking notes, by discipline. Look at verse 8. It says this, and you, watchtower for the flock, fortified heel of daughter Zion. The former ruler will come to you. Sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem. Now, why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? Has your counselor perished so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? Wreath and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you will leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the grasp of your enemies. 
And so while the promises that the Lord, uh, that the Lord had given through the prophet Micah were in the distant future of a king that is coming and ruling and reigning and his entire law will fill the earth, now he's talking about a closer future. And what is this closer future? Soon, God's people will be captured by foreign powers. There will be no uh, king to lead them, no counselor to provide them wisdom. They will be brought into Babylon and they will spend time in Babylon for only a, a certain amount of time until the Lord gathers them and rescues them and redeems them from the grasp of their enemies. So in a sense... Even though the Lord is promising all these things, what is the Lord doing by sending them into Babylon? He's disciplining them. The Lord is disciplining them by deporting them. And why is the Lord disciplining his people? Well, first of all, the Lord disciplines his people because it's motivated by love. And the Lord is disciplining them by teaching them and drawing them back to themselves so that they could understand covenant loyalty and obedience. Like in our mind, I don't think discipline is a very good word for us because when we think about discipline, we think about correcting behavior through punishment. But not only is it correcting behavior through punishment, but it's also teaching and training up. And so the Bible says that the Lord disciplines us. Hebrews 12 verse 7, he says, endure suffering as discipline. Why? Because God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? No discipline seems enjoyable at that time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Lord governs his people by disciplining his people, which means correcting behavior and teaching correct behavior. It's motivated by love. And what is the fruit of discipline? It says this, the priestful fruit of, of righteousness. And think about what the Lord had done to his people. The Lord certainly had sent them into exile. He sent Israel to exile with, with his, when the Assyrians cap, cap, took him captive and Judah into Babylon. And Micah said, it's only going to be temporary, but God is going to rescue his people. And we know the fulfillment of prophecy. They were in Babylon for about 70 years. And then b- b- before Ezra and Nehemiah began to lead the people back to Jerusalem during the reign of Cyrus of Persia, God fulfilled his promise. He disciplined them. He trained them. He corrected corrected them and then he regathers them and then we also see in verse 10 and there the lord look at the end of verse 10 there the lord will redeem you from the grasp of your enemies what does that mean i think that is a future fulfillment Because even though the Lord had redeemed people from Babylon gathered them back to Jerusalem there was still oppression They were either oppressed by the Persians, the Medes, the Greeks, or the Romans. And the oppression continues. But the prophecy began to be fulfilled when the Lord was redeeming his people uh, from the grasp of his enemies. When Jesus first came. And what did he do? He came to redeem us from our enemies, from Satan's sin and death. And then he's coming back as he's defeated our enemies. He's coming back to destroy our enemies and make all things new. 
So how does this promise of God ruling over us by disciplining us, how does that give us hope? Well, consider your suffering as discipline. If the Lord is disciplining you, that means he loves you and he's treating you as a son or a daughter. He is committed and training you up so that you can produce the fruit of righteousness. And it's not necessarily punishing you because you're stepping out of line. I think that's, the most, that's probably the most common thought when we think about discipline. Oh, the Lord is punishing me because I did something wrong. Is that true? Yeah, sometimes it is true, but not true all the time. It could also be like the Lord is trying to teach you something. The Lord is trying to train you up for something. And what is that something? Righteousness. And the discipline might not be pleasant, but the Lord is treating us as children. Discipline will yield righteousness. And one day our discipline will be complete when Jesus comes back and destroys all of our enemies once and for all. So take hope. The Lord is disciplining you. He loves you. He's training you up. As we're wrapping up, the last promise, we're almost done, is this. The Lord governs his people by his power. Look at verse 11. Many nations have now assembled against you. They say, let her be defiled and let us feast our eyes on Zion. But they do not know the Lord's intention or understand his plan that he has gathered them like sheaves for the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will make your horns iron and your hooves bronze, so you can crush many peoples. Then you will set apart their plunder for the Lord, for the wealth of the Lord of the whole earth. The nations surround the people of God, Israel and Judah, and they intend to destroy them. And they're saying, look, this is a weak nation. Look at the people of God. Look how weak they are. But what they don't realize is who's allowing them to be conquered? God is. Which means they're thinking, oh, look at what we're doing. Look what we're getting away with. And yet God has a purpose and a plan through all of this as he's displaying his power. He raises up nations to discipline his people. And after he's done disciplining them, what does he do? He punishes that nation for the wrong they've rightfully done. Like God right now is ruling and reigning his people by his power. He has redeemed us and he is continue going to redeem us when he gathers us as his own and he rules and reigns over us. So as the world looks at it, all the chaos that's going on, it's easy for the world to say, look at what their God is allowing to happen. Look at all this chaos. And we can find hope in the midst of the situation saying, this is all according to God's plan and God's purpose. And what, what's going to happen at the end? He's coming back. And all the wrong in the world will be made right. And he will rule and he will reign as he's doing now with his power and he will do later in his power. So take heart. The Lord has not abandoned us. The Lord has not forsaken us. The Lord is coming. And the Lord is going to rule over us as his people by his law, where his law will be written in our hearts. He will rule over us as a king 
but not like any other king. A king who doesn't have to shout, who has to conquer, but a king who lays down his life for his subjects, who is patient and diligent in teaching his people. The Lord will reign over us as he disciplines us, as he's committed in correcting us and training us up so that we can become righteous and reflect the righteousness we have in Christ. And all of this he will accomplish by his power. So here's our response. Both the coming and both the return of Jesus brings hope in a hopeless world. 2024 might be hopeless, but we are not without hope. Why? Because we serve the king. So let us look to the king. Let us trust the king. Let us fix our eyes on the king. And let us be in our suffering, let us be knowing that our king is working because he's disciplining us. He is training us. And he is preparing us to gather us and to turn us into a strong nation because he is that strong. Let me pray for us. Lord, I am just amazed at your mercy and grace towards a people that have rebelled and rejected you. And Lord, as we read about the history of the nation of Israel and we see their rebellion, Lord, that is true for even us as, as your people now in the 21st century. We're quick to rebel against you. We're quick to reject your word. We're quick to self-justify all of our actions, bow down to false idols. And yet, Lord, you are patient with us. You're faithful in love and you do not abandon us. Lord, thank you for the hope that you've given us, that you're coming back to make all things new, that you will rule over us, that you've made this new covenant with us where you've given us your spirit, where you've written your law into our hearts, that you've empowered us to obey your law, and one day we will be able to obey it perfectly. And so, Lord, our our prayer this morning is can you help us When we find ourselves without hope, can you help us to look to you? Can you help us to trust you? Can you help us to know that you are good, that you are in control, that you are all-powerful, and all your promises that you have made is yes in Christ Jesus. And if there's any area where we've misplaced our hopes, Can you discipline us by redirecting our hope so that it may be in you? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.